Please take your Bible to Romans chapter 15, and we'll see the instruction of the Word of the Lord, and what I think is a a spectacular applicational transition and conclusion to the whole gospel of the book of Romans. Let's read verses 8 through 13. We've already covered 8 and 9, and we won't, be able to have, we won't have time today for 12 and 13, but today we'll focus our attention on the end of 9, verse 10, and verse 11. But let's read them all together. Romans chapter 15 and verse 8, the word of the Lord says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay, Christ's service testifies this. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You can be seated. Children who are going to head off to junior church, you can be dismissed right now. I want to start this sermon um, with an illustration that is meant to tell you where we're going. Uh, I, a church I used to belong to, every time they took communion, they would sing the, the old hymn, Bless Be the Tie, Bless Be the Tie That Binds. And as I thought about this text and that song, I looked up the context, the story that song was written. It was written by a man named John Fawcett. He was orphaned at the age of 12. That's important. He felt no immediate connection to family. However, he was converted shortly after his parents passed, hearing the preaching of George Whitfield. He began preaching soon after that, and in 1765, he was called to a Small, poor country church in Yorkshire, England. And I mean poor country church. I I read some accounts of that particular congregation. Everyone in his congregation was illiterate. Um, Farmers. It was a very modest group of people. Seven years after being called there and doing faithful work, a much more prestigious church in London came calling and said, we would like you to come and pastor our congregation. Of course, this drew 
faucet. He desired to go. So he stood one Sunday and announced to the congregation that it would be his last day with them and that they were leaving. On Sunday afternoon, the cart showed up to take the final belongings off to London. And when he and his wife got in their carriage to leave, the people of their small congregation came and stood beside the carriage and wept and begged him not to go. His wife turned to him and said, I do not see how I can leave. And he agreed. And they announced to the congregation there from their carriage that they had changed their mind and that they were staying. Shortly after that, John Fawcett wrote to him, Bless be the tie that binds us together in Christian love. I think that's significant. I think that speaks to the way a group of really diverse brothers and sisters are knit together in a way that is really uncomfortable to break. Drawn together, tied together, in a way that, honestly, when you have to separate, in some way it feels a little bit like dying. But what is the tie that binds us together? The way I titled it is this, hope, the tie that binds us together. What I mean by that hope is this, if Christ is to be the blazing center of our fellowship, the tie that binds us together, then we have to see Christ truly. Our eyes have to be full of Christ if we're to be tied together, knit together. So the point that Paul's making, he's given us this great transition. And we're picking up on it as we've been going. Chapter 15, look at verse 2 and 3. He starts hinting at it. Now, Romans 14 and 15 are two chapters about the diverse faith family not dividing over their preferences, right? Look back, chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. Welcome each other, but not to debate, not to dispute. Welcome each other. Not to fix the other person's opinions, but to fellowship together. So he's talking about how we're different and how we should be patient and gentle and not debate over things that don't need to be debated over. But he makes this wonderful transition. It's wonderful. And he hints at it in chapter 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. So, so now we're different. We have plenty of reason to disagree. But what can we do for each other's good to build them up, to edify? Because here's the, here's the hint that we're about to see a transition. For Christ did not please himself. Look down to verse 6. <clears throat> so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We're seeing that Paul's saying, I'm not trying to get you to care less about your opinions. And that's not my hope either. I don't want you to care less about how you feel about 
going to the movies or playing cards or alcohol or church service schedule. I'm not wanting you to care less about those things. That's not our intent. We're not trying to become dull in our passions, but prioritized in our passions. I don't want you to care less about those things. Continue to have really strong opinions about how you glorify God with the things you choose to do. But do it in the arena of Christ's supremacy so that we can look at each other and say, wow, we are really different. But oh my, we have Christ in common. Our eyes are both full of beholding Christ. And that is the tie that knits us together. Verse 7 is the theme of the paragraph we're studying right now. Christ is the agent of divine glory. Christ is the subject of divine glory. As we study verses 9, 10, and 11 today, I do want you to see Christ as the subject. But the more I studied and the more I read, there's a lot of uh, uh, language study that indicates that Christ is meant to be heard as the speaker. These are cross-references, some to Moses, Isaiah, Psalms. But Christ is meant, as we read this, Paul is using cross-references, but saying Christ is not only the subject, he's the, he's the speaker. He's the one who is communicating these promises to us. Now, in my Bible... <clears throat> The heading over verse 8 says Christ, the hope of Jew and Gentile. That's helpful to me. Now, if you have a, um, a New American Standard, I don't think the New American Standard puts headings in it, at least not the version that I had. But if you have a Bible that puts paragraph descriptions in, maybe yours sounds a little bit like mine. Christ, the hope of Jew and Gentile. I mean... It's hard for us in our context to be able to comprehend the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There there was natural, ingrained hostility between those two groups of people. Let me me borrow a minute to just communicate what I mean. During the intertestamental period, the period between when the Old Testament closed its writing and the New Testament picked up its writing, um, there was an attempt to Hellenize the Jewish people, right? To make them Greek. And they went to great lengths to undo the Jewishness of the Jewish people. It's horrific. It's horrific. If a Jewish family performed what they saw as the imperative ritual of circumcision on a child, the mother of the child would be crucified on a cross and the baby who had been circumcised would be tied around the mother's neck while both of them died. And the heading of this chapter is Christ, 
the hope of Jew and Gentile together. We have no comparable to the tension between Jew and Gentile. Think about the things we despise each other for. Right? Ballots in February. Our feelings about COVID. The woke versus the unwoke, whatever that means. When this text speaks to Christ as the hope of Jew and Gentiles together, that application to Jews and Gentiles being together in Christ supersedes whatever tension we might feel as a culture and definitely as a church family. So rest assured, whatever it is that feels like it's pulling at you, this text provides direction to not feel that way anymore. So, verse 7, Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. The matter for us right now is if Christ is a greater passion to us than our preferences. If we care more about, here's what I wrote as I sat at my desk. If we care more about political preferences, social life, ideas about COVID, or any number of doubtful disputes, then we care about Christ among us, in us, before us. Our testimony is united church of Jesus Christ is at great risk. So my intent in the next 30 minutes is not to ask you to care less about your preferences. Continue to have a settled opinion about what you should or should not do as a priest worshiping God. But my hope as one of our church elders is to call you to care more about Christ than you did when you got here. To help us do that, would you hold your spot in Romans 15, but would you take your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Revelation chapter 1, just a quick pastoral plug, the next time a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your house, and I hope that they do, go to Revelation 1. John 1 is where we usually go when we talk to a Jehovah's Witness, and that's helpful. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus Christ is co-equal with God. That's helpful. The problem is their interpretation of the Bible has justified that away. They haven't yet corrected their Bible's version of Revelation 1. I say corrected, conformed it to their presupposition. Revelation 1, look at, like, for example, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, here's what happens in Revelation chapter 1. John sees this vision... And listen to what he saw. We'll we'll pick up in verse 13. One like the Son of Man, by the way, who's already identified himself as the Alpha and Omega, okay? That's why the, the little commercial about Jehovah's Witness. I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, 
a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. John saw that. That's amazing. In these minutes we spend, in Romans 15, my prayer is that we see that. So let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see. There is a dullness and there is a dimness that puts callous over our eyes because of the things that we have seen and delighted in that are trivial and fleeting. And so as your spirit moves and as your word goes forward, give us eyes to see the radiance of Christ Jesus in his name. Amen. I want to take us through four points with the time we have this morning. And they will be shorter, so I'll try to communicate them clearly as we jump from one to the next. The first point is sort of an introduction to what we're reading about here. The first point is this, which by the way, I I would just invite you, if you didn't already pick up a sermon handout, feel free to walk to the back and get one out of the racks that are in the back. There's three of them. Feel free to go because I put a lot of cross-references in the sermon notes today. So it will be a great help to you. If you don't have one, I won't mind a bit if you go grab one. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus gets up there, there are two others with him. Who are they? They are the law and the prophets. They are Moses and Elijah. And Peter gets up there and expresses a lack of understanding. Do you appreciate Peter? He didn't always say the right thing, but you knew exactly what he thought. And I like that. You don't have to be politically correct. I just want to know where you're at. We can work from there. But if I don't know where you're at, it's hard to make any progress. With Peter, you knew exactly where he was at. And Peter says the dumbest thing. He's, oh, This is fantastic. Moses is here. Elijah's here. And then our own teacher's here. Let's make three temples. (laughs) Peter, you don't understand. The law is here to say there's one temple. The prophets are here to say there's one temple. Jesus is here to say, I am the temple. So listen listen to Luke 9. And as he was praying, there appeared, the appearance of his face was altered His clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were there talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter says, Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here to see this. Yeah, sure. That's the good part of the day. Let's make three tents. 
One for you and Moses and Elijah. Here we go. Not knowing what he said. And when he said it, God opened the clouds, overshadowed them, and said with a loud voice, this is my son, my chosen one, listen. Well, you knew where Peter stood, but God makes it clear that Peter was missing it. The law and the prophets weren't to be worshipped. They pointed to Jesus. So the first thing I want to say, the first point, is just setting our attention in this text. That all these cross-references to the Old Testament <clears throat> are not some amb- ambiguous mystery. They are all testimonies of Christ, about Christ, to God's glory. We notice a bit of a, trans- uh, uh, um, a progression in these verses. When we look at verse 9, you'll see here a quotation for confession. As we keep going, you're going to see secondly that the Gentiles are rejoicing with Israel. You'll see third that the Gentiles are praising God even independently from Israel. And then fourth, that the reason for all of the praise in Israel and in non-Israel, the Jews and Gentiles, is because of the root of Jesse. That's, that'll be verse 13. Here's what I want to say as we leave this part. We talk about the transfiguration of our Christ. I want to make sure that we know this. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace of God that was given to Paul, like a skilled master builder who laid foundation first and then built on it, let everyone take care how he builds. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can lay a foundation other than Christ. However, we live in a culture that's doing that all the time. It's doing it all the time. Uh, can I ask, I've been listening to a podcast on Christianity Today uh, about Mars Hill. What's the title of the whole podcast? Who? Say it again. The Rise and Fall. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Yeah, I know Mike's been listening to it and Jay... And I, I would commend it. It's interesting to listen to. It's, it's a great lesson in ecclesiology, like the way church is and should be. <clears throat> it's interesting to me to see the way Mars Hill, as out in, the church out in Seattle in 1996 was founded. In my opinion, from the testimony I'm hearing, the church was founded. It became a mega church. The church was founded to be the anti-type of church. Like that was the heartbeat. We want to be a different church. Like we want to be the unmega mega church was really the vision. It's interesting to me to see how many churches are started precisely to lay some foundation in a community that's appealing, but it's not Christ. Other foundation can no one lay other than Christ. We cannot build the people of God in this place on anything other than Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let me go to number two. First we see the transfigured Christ. All of the scriptures are pointing to him. Now let's look at what they're pointing to about him. 
Verse number nine, the second half of the verse says this. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a quote from Psalm 1849. I will praise you. That's not unusual, right? We're talking about a songwriter saying, I will praise you. What does stand out is the psalm writer says, I will praise you and I want everyone to hear it. David says, I will praise you and I want everyone to know. This is similarly recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Take your Bibles, please, to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. He says in Psalm 18 verse 4, this is his condition. This is a record of David being delivered from Saul who was trying to kill him. David acknowledged that it was God who had delivered him. He says in verse 4, listen to the depth of hopelessness. The chains of death had bound me. Look at verse 6. In distress, I called upon the Lord, my God. To him I cried out for help. And then I want to pick up in verse 7. And I want to read a pretty lengthy portion. 7 through 15. You see the writer feeling like he has chains of death wrapped tightly around his whole body. He's in despair, and he calls out to God. And then verse 7 is what happens next. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went out from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of wind. He made darkness his covering. His canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his cloud. The Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord. At the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. David is in peril unto death, calls out to God, and that's the description of what happened next. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 18, and Jesus is the subject of Psalm 18. David wants that truth to be sung to the whole world. 
You ever read the Psalms and wish you spoke about God like that? I do. And that's one of them. I wish I was the one that said that to people for the first time. That's amazing. But I want you to understand this. Anyone who says anything glorious about God is echoing Jesus' message written in his heart. The psalmist says this because Jesus Christ has set us free from the death of sin to say praise to God. Remember up in verse 6, so we're back in our text in Romans 15. And remember what he says in verse 6? He's starting this transition into, yeah, you have a lot of stuff to disagree about, but what about Jesus? And he says this, that together with one voice, you glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, brothers and sisters, friends, people we are growing in sanctification with, would it be our greatest joy as a church To sing of our Redeemer. We stood with the chains of death binding us. In distress of eternal damnation. And he broke forth from the clouds with hailstones and coals of fire. And laid bare all the world. At the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Would that be the greatest delight of our fellowship together? To just say until breath is final that that is our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this transfigured Christ. Everything of scripture points to him. We see this triumphant Christ. When we were in despair, when when we had nothing, he broke forth as our savior. Third, the God who exhales smoke from his nostrils and fire from his mouth (laughs) is a merciful and gracious God. Christ Merciful and gracious. You ever thought about the holiness of God? Holiness of God is its complete otherness. There's none like him. Holy, holy, holy. There's none like him. But it's not just that he's different from everything. Satan's different from everything. God's holiness means that he holds all of these wonderful awesome characteristics in perfect balance. Pastor Will is homesick today. He was going to be teaching his core seminar. He's teaching systematic theology. Today's lesson was, and we spoke about it this week, today's lesson was divine sovereignty and human responsibility. How do those two coexist? Oh, the wonder of wonders, right? 
the holiness of God. At one moment, fire coming out of his mouth, and at the next moment, being a gentle father, merciful and gracious. Holy is our God. So he goes next to verse 10. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is a song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. You can, you can turn your Bibles there now, because that's where we're headed. Deuteronomy 32. The merciful, gracious Christ. I don't know if you see it right away, but mercy and grace are in that little statement in verse 10. Mercy and grace. Gentiles, a people who are not a people, who are now my people, rejoice. Because now you're on the inside and Israel's on the outside. That's, that's not what it says. How could this people, who were not a people, be brought into the covenant redemption with God? Oh, that is gracious. Gracious. All of us Gentiles in this covenant with God? Gracious. But we're not in there alone. There's other people in there. Oh the other people a people who had benefits in every way Paul's already said there's much benefit in being a Jew you have the oracles of God the Messiah has come through your people you have the law and the prophets you had every advantage to be saved Jewish people and because They had so effectively been evangelized by the scriptures and the prophets and the law. They're all redeemed. (laughs) No. No. The very prophets of God came and ministered to those people. And what did they do? The very Messiah came and said to them, I am from my father. And I do his will. He and I are united. One. And they said, oh, Jesus, your teaching is so wonderful. We believe every word. They killed him. They said, we hate your message so much We would rather let a criminal go who endangers our family than let you go. Gentiles, rejoice with them. Grace and mercy. How how does God put up with that? Mercy. Mercy. What they did not deserve. They deserved damnation, but it was withheld. Let's look at 32. Deuteronomy 32. It's like Psalm 18. The first thing I want you to see is that Christ will have vengeance. So, like in Psalm 18, 
smoke, and fire. Deuteronomy 32 verse 40 says this. I lift up my hands to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy, Christ will have vengeance. Let's read another verse. Christ will establish himself over all other gods. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's lands. Let your eyes go back up to verse 39. Christ is the salvation that follows deserved judgment. Verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. He is the judge. His salvation follows just judgment. So here in Romans 15, we are invited to rejoice Rejoice, Gentiles, and these that are already the people of God. It sounds like Ephesians to me. It sounds like Ephesians, uh, those who were close and those who were far, rejoice together. The, the walls of hostility being broken down. Here's this call to rejoice. I mean, sinner, rejoice. The God who rides on dark clouds where hailstones come from and smoke comes out of his nose and fire shoots out of his mouth, celebrate, sinner. What? The fact that we celebrate while that holy judge exists is a reminder that the covenant that God made with Abraham will be kept and it wasn't a covenant just to ethnic Jews. But we are being blessed in that covenant. Rejoice. Christ is the hope of Jew and Gentile. So what do we have to this point? We see Christ transfigured. We see in verse 9 that we sing praise to him among the nations. We see in verse 10 that we are, or the Messiah invites us and them, there's an us, them, to salvation. And now we want to get into verse 11. He calls them to join in the song of praise. Calling them to join in the song of praise. When we think about the promises God made to Abraham, 
we're reminded those are the promises of God. And we're reminded that those were not promises just to one ethnic people group. Certainly Abraham had physical descendants. <laughs> those descendants include the patriarchs. They include the Messiah. All the earth is blessed in the promise. 2 Corinthians 1 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. An engagement ring that we are his bride. Christ's merciful, gracious propitiation for sinners. Rejoice. Christ Jesus has satisfied the anger of holy God. Rejoice. Do you know what that mercy and grace means? In Deuteronomy 32, he says, I will take a sharp sword and I will mow down flesh. He says, I'll take a bow and arrow and I will make the tip of the arrow drunk with the blood of my enemies. Totally just to do that very thing. Christ intercedes, makes propitiation, the sword yielding, yielding, arrow flinging God becomes a dad. If your earthly fathers, when you ask them for bread, don't give you snakes, how much more? Your father. God goes from that sword-yielding, arrow-flinging judge of the wicked to a dad giving out bread when we ask. And the Spirit works in us to call on him, Abba, Father. Christ, the propitiation for the wicked. Let me finish with this one. The faithful Christ. It's the fourth one, the faithful Christ. Transfigured, triumphant, merciful, gracious, lastly, faithful. And again, he says in verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. It is about Christ, it is spoken by Christ, and it is a call to praise the Lord, all Gentiles. This reference is taken from Psalm 117. There are, I believe, three verses in Psalm 117. That's the first one. Listen as I read the second one. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. For, verse 2, Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Basically, because of Christ, his faithful interceding for us, 
that while we grow and sin, grow and then sin, grow and then sin, grow and then sin. Is that anybody else or is that just me? Is everyone else just growing and not sinning? As we grow and then sin, as we grow and then sin, God doesn't become bread giver, sword yielder. Bread giver, sword yielder. Why not? He is faithful who promised. The interceder, pleading by his own blood at the throne of God, intercedes for us. He is faithful. Constant. Mounts says this. Paul cites this verse in support of his position that the salvation of the Gentiles was in God's mind from the first. It's not something God decided to do later. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. He quotes back to Psalm 117. Israel didn't become, or the Gentiles didn't become plan B because of how they responded to Jesus. Psalm 117 says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. This is not some auxiliary plan. Like, oh, I really thought Israel was going to believe when Jesus preached. Whether it is the story of the Old Testament, God graciously fathering a predominantly ethnic people. Or whether it's the story of the New Testament, God's word making it clear that the people in view are a spiritual people. Or whether it's the story yet to be told that God is going to save a remnant of those ethnic people The story is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the subject and he's the messenger. The word of the Lord today has described God's vengeance vividly and I I think probably listening to that word are some people who are yet under his wrath and I just want to say a word before we move away I want to make some application to us as a church but before I move away from this description of God's sword yielding and arrow flinging I want to make sure that you understand you might be tempted to say, I deserve the sword and the arrows. I've done things too bad to get the bread. If that's where you are this morning, if if you're sitting here and you're saying, Pastor, you think that I'm something different than what I am. I mean, my life is just racked with sin. Secret sin, past sin, I live with constant guilt. I want to point out two scriptures to you. The first one is in 1 Timothy. It's one of my favorite passages. It reminds me why God would save someone like me. I shared it with the youth group on Wednesday. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, 
No one's out sinned me. I've sinned as much as anybody could think of sinning. And we could look at Paul's, Saul's life and say, ooh, yeah, a lot of sin. I mean, if you followed Christ and Paul, Saul found out, he would either put you in prison or put you to death because you followed Christ. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I'm, I'm sinning more than anybody else, he says. But his mercy has been shown to me so that in all of the ages to come, his mercy might be made known. You say, I deserve the sword and I deserve the arrow. I've done too many bad things. If, you're, if, that's, your, if that's your conclusion right now, that is wonderful news because you are exactly the person God saves as he shows off his mercy. If you're here and you're saying, I don't, I don't think I'm going to get the sword or the arrow because I'm a pretty good person. I've done a lot of good things. That is a dangerous place to be. The other passage I want to share with you before I move away is Hebrews 7.22. The Bible says that this Christ, who we just described as faithful, all those he saves, he saves to the uttermost. Completely. Never taken away from him. So I want to say that to any of you who might not be saved. We've talked about Christ. We've talked about the wrath. And I want you to know that the faithful Christ, merciful and gracious, is your only hope of salvation. And so I would invite you to call on him, believing. He is the only way of salvation. And so to call out to him in faith, confessing and trusting him as your savior, as your Lord, as king that he is. Now, before I wrap up here, I want to say, church, how does all of this celebration of who Jesus is apply to us practically? Really, really practically. Turn your Bibles back to Romans 12.1. We are studying this section of Romans that is Christian living. It's the application of all the wonderful doctrine of the first 11 chapters. And it says... We are being begged, pleaded with, by the mercies of God to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Who does the presenting and what is presented? You do the presenting of you. You are the priest and the sacrifice. And we are being pleaded with based on the mercy explained in the first 11 chapters to act like priests who worship God and put ourselves daily on the altar of his glory. Being transformed by the renewing of our mind. As the reality of Christ breaks through so much dullness. Think about it. Every time you expose yourself to something trivial or trite, Every time you take delight in something that doesn't deserve your pleasure, you dull yourself. And here we've come to scripture and we've heard these descriptions of Christ. And as that breaks through, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
And so we have all these diversities. We have plenty to argue about. Romans chapter 14 and 15 have been teaching us how to deal with all that. And I think this paragraph punctuates it by saying, sure, you could spend time arguing about all the stuff you disagree about, all the various opinions that you have. Or you could see the risen Christ. You could see that you have Jesus himself in common. And you get to choose today. What do you want to converse about? The way you dress the church? Is that, is that what you want to spend time debating? Or Christ. Triumphant, merciful and gracious, and faithful. A mediator who's conquered sin and death and in propitiating for us turned the sword-yielding God into a bread-giving God. What do you want to focus on about why we come to church together? No other foundation can be laid. If we try to be a church that is like this music church or this dress church or this passion church, it just won't work. There will always be controversy. But if the foundation is Christ here, that can be built on. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of Jesus Christ. The message of your word has to be heard over and over and over because in our flesh, there's just this reoccurring callousness that, that grows up over our eyes. It makes, us, makes it hard for us to see and to treasure and to prioritize Christ among us. And so, other things that we care about in an inordinate way become challenges to our fellowship and our worship. Lord, there are things that are reasonable opinions in our church. Cause Christ to supersede all of those and be the reason for our worship. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.